Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. I'd like to introduce Corey Gruska. He is an entrepreneur, career director, and previously a successful corporate lawyer. He is the founder and creative director of Stories Bureau, a boutique creative agency focused on B2B content and working with Fortune 500 companies. They work across industries with particular expertise in consumer packaged goods and technology. In addition to his work with Stories Bureau, he consults on business development, strategy, positioning, and branding design matters, among other things. Corey, I want to welcome you. I look forward to talking to you. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Likewise. You really have quite a varied background, ranging from uh, initially studying computer animation, then law, going on to becoming a seasoned corporate lawyer, and then shifting into marketing, and now founding your own marketing agency. And I'm curious, tell me some of the aha moments that have impacted you in your career path, and also that's uh, affected your and influence your marketing philosophy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my um, biggest aha moment is one of them just realizing that I need to change. Change is uh, something that I embrace as a person. And I think in business, that's definitely impact- impacted my career, but I think it's also permeates the way I think about marketing and marketing strategy. And I think from a marketing perspective, I think embracing it, looking at what's next, thinking actively about it, scenario planning. I do that in my career all the time, and I've done it probably too much, but I think same goes for marketing. I'm going to dig a little deeper. What has caused you to pursue change? Because you know, often people don't want change. They want continuity. They want consistency and predictability. So you're telling me you take the opposite path. And I'm curious, have you always been that way? Or is there something that impacted you to shift you to that focus? So I guess, so we started with insights podcast and now we're moving into like a therapy, uh, personal growth podcast. But I think what to me is honestly like, uh, gets a little personal, but like my background, my childhood, my family and I moved around not that much. Some families, army, you know, military families and so forth. You know, I grew up for the first six years in Florida. Then we moved to Queens, New York. And then we moved to Northern New Jersey where I did high school. And then from there on, and I spent a lot of time in New York, in the city, kicking around the city and so forth. But like my career just kind of did that as well. My academic career, my professional career, you know, I went to college and started BU in Boston, but it was too cold. And so I ended up moving to Florida, Central Florida, where they have an animation program. And I went law school in DC, Philly, multiple places in fit, you know, so it's kind of ingrained and trained, I think. Almost kind of enjoy it, you know? Not almost, very much so. And I think that's a mentality for marketers that I think is relevant. Also kind of like having, taking passion or inspiration in thinking about, honestly, scenario planning and the future and what's out there and experimenting and so forth. I agree with you. I actually think it's very related to insights because often I think, and we'll talk about this in a minute, is you know, people have different views on what actually is an insight, but I think, you know, being open to change and looking for change often gives you the ability to see insights where maybe others may not have seen them at all. What do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, that is what insights, insights is intended to be insightful. And I think that's sometimes where it, it doesn't always deliver on it. You know, I think that's one of the challenges. It's a really hard field. You're kind of like forming the future. You know what I mean? Insights is all about like, what are we doing? You know, where does the brand, where does our products, where does our marketing, how do we position ourselves in the future? I mean, today too, but it's essential to the insights process to be able to scenario plan for sure, but like look objectively and in an inspired way at kind of what's next and what direction can we go and how does that impact where we stand today and the decision process we have in front of us, you know, the consideration set in any context. I think that's what insights is all about and kind of the objectiveness and the open-mindedness is so important because and that also comes, you know, there's bias and there's, uh, which everybody has, some more than others. And I think it's very important as you, in the insights process, in the research process, whatever it is you're looking into. I agree. And I think with the bias, I think everyone has their bias, but I think if someone's open to change, they're able to then question some of their bias as well, because they're actually open to a different uh, viewpoint or a different perspective. And I think what you're saying is something that Wayne Gretzky often said is he doesn't go where the puck is, he goes where the, the puck is headed or going to be, right? And I think, so that's very interesting. Tell me, how do you define insights? Interesting. That's Now we're getting into philosophy podcasts. <laughs> we're going to cover it all today. <laughs> how do I define insights? Well, it's probably different in different industries. It's different. And in, to me, for sure, the different in different industries. And even in the size of the business, the different business units that, I mean, it's generally marketing, I'd say, like it's uh, consumer insights to me as I've seen it, whether, you know, mostly it's in a bunch of industries, but it's started in CPG with P&G, I think that's what everyone says. And it's kind of become a lot more commonplace in tech. You see more insights in big tech, small tech insights for in the tech space. And it's different in CPG versus tech because Tech is looking at users, CPG is looking at consumers, at purchasers of their products, retail or e-commerce, and consuming them at a mass market. And so the way I define it is finding a very small set of, I guess you can call it, uh, you know, I don't, not to make a tie-in, but aha moments or ideas that are actionable, that are fairly narrow in terms of the concept. It might be broad in terms of the application, but a very specific idea that is going to make money for the business. In tech, it's more about, honestly, the user and the UX and the CX and the product. In CPG, Insights is like for the marketing team, mostly. R&D, innovation, although innovation often tends to have their own insights, innovation insights in the big CPG world. But I think it's about the goal of insights, the way I define insights, is a group of people that are doing a bunch of research and a bunch of thinking and strategy work and testing and identifying decisions that can be taken that are either pivot or continue and double down, whatever it is, that are actionable and actioned on and make money for the business. In addition to kind of the overarching like segmentations and the overall positioning stuff, the branding and the brand research that is being done. To me, the key, if Insights is not delivering specific stuff that the CMO, the CEO, the business can do very specifically because they invested a lot of money in thinking about it and talking to consumers, 
then it's falling down in my mind. It's not delivering fully. There's other things that it does, again, brand and voice of the consumer, but that's my take. That's long-winded, but uh, that's my I agree with you. I think insights is more than just facts or numbers. It's a combination of many things grouped together. I often talk about a good example is a, a really good comedian who takes something from over here and over here, puts it together and makes you say, oh my God, I never thought of that, but that's an absolute truth. And I think that's what an insider is trying to get to a core truth, whether it be in IT, and I think you're right, it's related to UI, UX, but also ultimately drivers that are driving a better UI, UX for the consumer and what's actually the motivator or the key driver for them. And I think you know that's the hard part is getting to it. But I think in the insight space, often people don't know what an insight is, and therefore they often don't know when they see an insight. <laughs> And often just stop at just a fact or a number, but it's much more beyond that as you're talking about. It's very hard. It's and it's not just some people don't know when they see an insight. Even very shrewd people, it's very hard to identify a true insight. It's not just that. It has to go further, right? Because you have to not just identify it and be like, hey boss, I think this is a great idea, or hey, CEO, this is a really important idea. You have to be an advocate, and this kind of probably gets into some of the other stuff we'll talk about and that we do, but you have to be an advocate for it. You have to bet at times take a risk, and it could be a career risk. And in terms of like, are you in fifth gear with the idea or are you in second gear with the idea? Second gear potentially doesn't do anything. It's like it does it never existed. Fifth gear is like maybe there'll be action taken on it, or depending on how senior you are, there definitely will be action. But then if there is, what if you're wrong? And I think that risk aversion is a really big thing in the inside space. There's a variety of ways to manage it. But I think the understanding of that thought process, I think is something that is not talked about all that much, or maybe it is, and I just don't go to the insights conferences, which I don't. <laughs> now that's an insight. <laughs> so, so tell me, I mean, maybe this is related to you becoming an advocate of the law to become an advocate of insights and marketing. Maybe you can tell me about that transition before I ask you the next question in terms of, let's answer that one first. All right. So like I started as a kind of creative, as a designer and an illustrator and an animator, but it was too creative. It was like fully just being stuck in a studio or a dark room that's cold in an animation, basically like hive for days on end. So I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to be challenged academically, went to law school did well on the LSAT, on the LSAT, never studied really, never was academic before. But so I went to a pretty good law school, actually did well, very surprising to pretty much everybody that knew me. And then I ended up having a career as a corporate lawyer. I really always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I was always intrigued and enjoyed creative and design. I was like, when I got to be a lawyer, I told my sweet mate, the lawyer that was the office next to mine, I'm not going to be here for more than like two years max. And I ended up being there for eight years. And I ended up getting this kind of like diverse, complex degree, basically, in advising high-end business people and thinking about business problems and looking at business structures. You know what I mean? Like that's what corporate lawyers do. And I think by the end, I was like, I had to get out. And so I ended up transitioning to my secretary's husband had a branding agency. He brought me on as a salesperson, basically, and was there for five. They did all CPG stuff. 
And it was there that I first learned about insights. We did brand strategy and package design, but CPG companies started coming to us and asking us for, do you do infographics? Do you do videos? And at first it was like one of the big beverage companies. Do you do infographics? Can you do it? It was a buddy of mine at an innovation firm and said, can you do infographics for a segmentation? I was like, I don't know what an infographic is and I don't know what a segmentation is, but definitely. And so we started there. And that just snowballed into like people would leave and go to this company and go to this company. And we ended up becoming like an insights. I think going back to your question, my legal career and my analysis aspect just kind of made it very natural for me to look at data, look at the business information. And the first time it came to me was through that agency, that branding agency, when I had clients that would come and from the insight space and be like, can you take this? complicated information and make it a really awesome deck? Or can you tell a two-minute story with this research project? And it was like, I got the story. I was able to analyze what the important things were. And the storytelling was in my nature, right? Legal for that multiple creative kind of areas, you know? And so that's how I think the legal and the design came together. A lot of agencies say left brain, right brain. I had to do it. Like, I, you know, that's kind of like how I fell into it. I understand. In fact, the reason I'm asking these things is because a lot of my background was moving around when I was young and changing, and I'm open to change. I love change. I embrace it. And I actually was interested in becoming a lawyer at one point as well. <laughs> and I realized like when I was in school, when I, I really like case studies. And what I like to buy case studies is basically weeding through all the noise and information you're given and getting to the essence of what's really driving things and seeing, you know, how that can actually solve the problem. And so to me, it makes perfect sense, you know, that you come from a legal to do this and being able to weed through all the noise, but get to the relevant facts, because ultimately you got to be an advocate for what you believe in, right? And that's why I was kind of asking us, it was a similar kind of thing for you. And it is. And so you know, it's not the normal path that one would assume one would take. But to me, it makes perfect sense because it's not necessarily the job. It's the skill set you need for those jobs that ultimately, I think, helped you to where you are. And obviously, you gravitated more towards a creative then because that's what you liked anyways. So so I have a, a couple of questions. Turn the microphone around, but you were going to say something. I was going to ask you the next question because based on this and you become an advocate of insights, give me an example because I think you might have one or two where you actually saw an insight, but you had to become a real advocate for that in order to convince the client or, you know, to really change the trajectory of the project or the campaign because you saw an insight, but you had to become an advocate and go through maybe some of those gears you're talking about to actually stand up for it. But in the end, it paid off. So I was wondering, do you have an example of that you can share with us? That's a good question. An insight that I advocated for. So there was one example. I'm not on a advocating for an insight. So the truth is, we're not utilized. We don't really do insights work, which is actually something we've been thinking about a lot. You know, because we're so close to it, and it's definitely you know we have so many irons in the fire as a business. This is like much lower in the higher in the checklist for us to do as a business to actually get into insights work. But what we do is we do the storytelling and the creative around it. I'll push people in different directions, but I purposefully today have part of it is expensive work and it's my time and it would take a lot of my time to really dig and put my fingers into it. But what we do is we help sell the insights and we help organize, if you will, build hierarchy into insights and the communication of them. So while I can't give you an example, I have a couple, but I won't give you an example on the insights space because I don't think they're as compelling, but 
On the storytelling piece, I think one of the things we did, so we've done a lot of segmentation work. I mentioned segmentation before, but the strategic planning around how the segmentations are communicated, segmentations are done by all the big companies in every industry that have meaningful marketing departments and a marketing strategy. But it varies so dramatically how they're deployed and how they're adopted. And that's the whole thing. And so there was one client that I worked with a few years ago that I pushed, you know, they created the segmentation. It was going to sit on a shelf effectively. It was going to have its day. It was going to be presented to the senior management, maybe even to the board. It was going to be utilized in some capacity. But I think what I came to the table with was the kind of the strategic planning of how are we going to deploy that segmentation? And in that instance, which is it's done sometimes, but not always, we identified three of the key segments, three of the key customer segments actually had in this instance, and this was kind of like, you can call it insights work, but it was collaborative with the insights team. Three of the key segments had very specific tie-ins to different business units within the organization. That's not always the case. Oftentimes it's just marketing, but in this case, marketing, product, one of them was innovation needs to just ride this. It is for sure an area that needs to be, we need to pump money into at least one product from an innovation perspective. So R&D. And so there was emerging markets, kind of like there was one unique opportunity. And so in this particular case, we looked at the segmentation and we identified these handful of set of segments out of 10, 15. And we really focused on that. The communication, and we focused with those audiences that are most important for right? So it wasn't just, here's the 12 segments, here's the five we think are the most important, let me do a presentation to you. We created effectively like a communications program, looking at the different audiences, looking at their priorities, their dependencies, their biases, and they're kind of like, what do they care about? Like in their effectively careers, who are they reporting to? And we crafted, we focused our, we created different versions of the deck that focus differently on different segments. You know, we prioritize in terms of the amount of slides, the story we're telling. We created a story for each of the five, but we didn't share the same story for each of the five. We took that one story for the first segment number one, and we led with it for this group. And we almost kind of templatized the deck. This can't always be done. It's always, it's not always so clean, but sometimes it is. And I think the key insight if I was going to say anything to somebody that's kind of like working with a segmentation or working with a study like this, they're not all as important as one another. And you need to create some level of hierarchy in terms of how much you're speaking to each one. You need to prioritize. And that'll be different across all of them. Sometimes it's one. And if it's one, don't be ashamed of it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, I only have one segment that came up in my research. I got to talk to all 10. Otherwise, I look like I didn't do anything or this wasn't effectual. Whatever it is, like back it with hierarchy, with the amount of time you're talking about it, the number of slides in the deck, the weight you're giving to it in the story, basically. And how did that change the trajectory of that project for you when you did that? It's hard to say what would have been, but I think I know that one of the segments was actioned on with, and I think it's probably still on the innovation. Uh, probably not. I haven't followed up, to be honest with you. But I know one of the segments was action in a meaningful way in the innovation process and so forth. Should check it out and talk to them about that actually. 
it's hard to say what would have been. I know that it was successful. I know that there were a lot of kind of like in the meetings that they did where I don't think there, there might not have been as much. You know what I mean? Because you're an engineer or an R&D person. If it's not tailored to me, and if, if you don't put on a plate and serve it to me, like aha moment in your words, right? Then they might miss it. Again, to what you said, people aren't great at identifying them. And like insights people struggle with that. So you know that engineers and R&D people and, you know, and sometimes it's complex because like the story is like there's a tie into marketing, but there's also like a sales angle, but it's really an R&D thing or it's really an innovation opportunity. And it's just you don't really put it on a silver platter sometimes and give people the story that's fairly custom. So I think it was a fa- very effective. That was the one, one of the ones where I was like, we really added value to the enterprise with design, creative. So what was the inspiration that led you to found Stories Bureau in, in 2018? Opportunity, honestly. It was the, I'm a big believer in niche, but also with scalability, right? Sometimes it's a niche that can be scaled. Sometimes it's a niche, but also having a business that can scale. And so when I founded Stories Bureau, I was at that branding agency. We were doing package design work, brand strategy work. And we, again, we were approached by a CPG, a big CPG uh, beverage company to work digital graphics for their segmentation. And I did it. I literally hired a marketing, uh, market research, like an insights person to consult and like teach me because this was kind of before, you know, chat GPT. And so I hired a market, an insights person to teach me what a segmentation was, how it fits in, what's the context, why do they need it? And then so learned all about it. And that snowballed into work with insights groups. And at a certain point, I got more and more of it. The more I learned, the more I learned that there's nobody serving this space from a storytelling perspective. You know, there are storytelling people, but there's nobody that's coming to this space and be like, we can create, we can take your data, your insights work, because we understand insights, make better stories out of it, and also give you high, you know, elite creative, better decks, better videos that have impact. When I learned about that, it was opportunity. This is a niche, a niche of one's dreams, right? There's a lot of demand and there's literally no supply. So we basically, we started doing so much work that we, my partners and I in the branding agency, we created a new entity. We called it at the time stories company, initially just focused on storytelling with insights and design for, you know, internal comms, really executive comms, but really for insights. And, and that snowballed into what we have today. Named, I was bought out. I took the company on my own five years ago in 2018. It's growing into what it is today, beyond insights, but insights that it's sold. Nice. So now that you know what infographics are and you know what storytelling is, as well as segmentation, what would you tell a young Corey that was just starting out when he didn't know it? Some things that you know now to save a lot of heartache and learning curve. How would you shorten that learning curve? What would you tell young Corey now about infographics, storytelling, as well as segmentation? Interesting question. So person that I was in 2018, you're saying when I just, when I just, I mean, or anybody else that, you know, new to the space that kind of like you were, didn't know about infographics, didn't know about segmentation or storytelling, but now that you've done it and you understand it very well, what would you tell them? Well, the problem is like, what do I tell myself or what do I tell somebody new to the space? Because what I would tell myself is this is a huge opportunity and I should have frankly doubled down faster 
Like we should have invested real money, built a real brand. I didn't have a website until six weeks ago. And I'm, to be honest with you, it's been five years, you know, we built all on the So from a business perspective, personally, I would have said that there is a need in the market in the inside space, insights people, they come through a specific track and insights folks come from basically an MBA track and they start working in insights usually directly, junior level insights person, they work their way up. For some reason, in that track, there is a, I think this is the case in every corporate business unit, but storytelling is is missing a little bit sometimes. So I think that's why storytelling is such a buzzword. The truth is nobody can do it. We can talk about why it's important, but a lot of other presentation experts and storytelling experts talk about the history and everything. But uh, you know, I think there's a real market need for storytelling. And it's not so much infographics, but it's presenting data in ways with hierarchy that are well calibrated to what audience needs and can process. And so I think the market opportunity, frankly, is what I would have told my earlier self. What would I tell like a young insights person? Sorry, tell me your top of mind thinking. Yeah. I think one thing I'll say is that um, you should be willing as you grow in your career Consider taking risks. Like the issue, I think the idea of like identifying insights is hard. It's hard to teach. It's going to be hard to teach throughout your career. And that's kind of like you got to do continuing education. You have to really study up as much as you can on a diverse, understand business. You know what I mean? Understand what drives businesses and how businesses are structured. And that's a hard thing. I think the idea of taking of whether you're really good or not good at identif- identifying insights, at some point in your career, you're going to have things you're, you feel strongly about. You're going to see insights that you think are right. Push those. You'll be wrong and there'll be risk. And well, I guess you have to also figure out like just how much of a risk taker are you, but probably be a little more biased in whatever, wherever you are. Maybe push the degree of risk you're willing to take. Don't you don't go from a person that takes no risk and is just going to do their job and deliver what's asked all the time their whole career. You don't go from that to being like a huge risk taker and like walking into the CEO's office being like, you need to do this. You know, like you're not going to do that, right? But you can move it a little bit. Move the needle. Have a bias towards taking a little more risk. When you see an insight, I feel like insights people know it. And there's a lot of, there's always conversations where it's like, you feel strongly, but you just get quashed. Or you feel strongly and you could take it up to another different type of conversation, but you don't go there. Maybe sometimes go there. So that's one thing I would tell an insights person. And on the storytelling piece, you really have to think about the audience and plan how you're going to be communicating the insights project. I think another thing that is a real just problem almost epidemic. There's so much money that goes, there's, you know, people spend like 750,000 on a project with Kantar and they'll get a a deck. They'll start working with it and have, all right, we need this main deck or whatever they need. And then they'll be, okay, so what's the plan? Like what's, who are we talking to? How are we implementing it? How are we activating it? How is it being socialized in our organization? I think that consideration needs to happen at the beginning of the project before and possibly in collaboration with Kantar, Ipsos, whoever it's going to be, right? Like I think in the beginning of the project, it's the project plan, what's the research plan, and then also what's the communications plan of it. We need a deck. Well, we need a main deck. We're going to probably have multiple customized decks. And at a certain point, you plan for it and you stuff bubbles up like that 
segmentation project that I did, okay, we need three sub decks. This one is going to be presented to this group and this types of meetings or whatever. And I need a sizzle video. I need a documentary short. I need a video for each of the segments. I need a video for the core segments. This is who we're using for it. Okay, we're using our internal team. We need to save money. Like, let's just use our internal team. Let's lean on Kantar. What can they do within scope? I, you know, the what I would tell a young person, this is pretty long-winded here, but what I would tell myself is huge opportunity for storytelling with insights. And what I would tell a young person is take risks with the insights that you find that you're passionate about from time to time throughout your career. And then also plan early and often in the projects that you do that have any level of heft to them for the communication, how you're going to communicate and to whom the research study. You've talked a few times about hierarchies in storytelling. Tell me what you mean by that. And if you can, give me an example of what you mean. All right. So this, so we have, a, I'm honestly not trying to be self-promotional, but we have a, a training program called the Center of Gravity. Uh, which we've done with a bunch of, you know, uh, large uh, Fortune 500 companies. It's called Center of Gravity because it's all about visual and content hierarchy. That's the name of the game. Everything, honestly, in corporate, anybody that's talking about anything, for sure, in business, but definitely in insights. So hierarchy from a content hierarchy perspective is like, you're building a deck. You need to be visual. So this actually comes from my career as a lawyer, lawyers work in outlines. Like lawyers work in outline forms. Business people work in decks. I never used PowerPoint before 2018. When I was my eight-year career as a lawyer, you might be surprised to hear, I never opened PowerPoint, which is interesting, right? Lawyers work in outlines. Lawyers work in Microsoft Word. And so, and the reason is you really, you have complexity, and this is also an information design principle, Complexity is managed through order, through hierarchy. And really, order is hierarchy. So from a content perspective, you know what I mean is thinking in terms of an outline, what are the key points? What are the dependencies from a content perspective underneath those points? What are below those points? And at the top level, let's say you're building a deck, are the top levels in your outline? And you should be looking, am I building my sections in my deck? Am I zooming out in my deck? Look at, you know, slide sorter in PowerPoint, you know, that the button on the bottom that lets you see the whole, all the slides in the deck on one. When you look in that view, have I built out sections? Are the sections logical? Like, are they all at the same level? Or like, are there two sections that are like clearly the key points? And all the other ones, I'm just bumping up to the level of a section but they're really not, you know, there's like, they're subsections of other ones. So that concept of hierarchy, I'll kind of leave it at that from an information perspective. So content hierarchy, that's what I mean by content hierarchy. It goes much deeper. It applies to data visualization. It applies to all sorts of other things, data really analysis. And from a visual perspective, hierarchy is everything. You know, you go to a website, how big the font is, you know, the space between blocks of text it is something bold, but something's not bold. And that's the case in every area of design. Visual hierarchy is managed and will change what you see, basically, and what you take away from what you see. But from a presentation perspective, to me, it's the most important piece. Within each slide, I have a paragraph of text. 
I can't help it. I have, which is another problem that most business people have. They put too much stuff on their slides and they can't help it. Most presentation designers say, just simplify your slides, just cut the paragraph. But, and that's a great principle, but like nobody does it. They just put the paragraph on there, right? So if you have a paragraph, what do you do? Nobody's going to read the paragraph if you're presenting that slide. So you summarize, you write a sentence that summarizes the paragraph, the key points in the paragraph, bold it, make it the font a little larger, make it the first sentence of your paragraph, and that's it. And then people are just going to scan the paragraph, read the first sentence. That's just a very simple, you ask kind of specifically what this hierarchy means. So specifically, it means content or information hierarchy and visual kind of design hierarchy and layout. That's kind of what I mean in this context, in the context of insights. I'm going to tell you how I'm interpreting what you're saying and tell me how close or how far I am. And I think what I'm hearing is interesting, which you talked about in terms of the word versus the you know slide format. And I think what you're talking about is you basically need to build logical steps of key points or um, factors that are going to ultimately build up to what you're doing in the end, which is either advocating, selling, or promoting a viewpoint or something. But you need these steps in order to cut through the the noise and bring clarity to the receiver, as well as have overlapping fields of experience with them that they can then absorb the, not only the, the information, but even the visual that ultimately leads to your ultimate goal that all these factors in the hierarchy lead up to. Is that close to what you're saying? I realize as I'm talking through this, that I'm kind of talking through my presentation. Some of this needs to be visual to be very clear. What I'm saying, I think what you're saying is right. The only caveat is what you're saying speaks to the story structure, the narrative structure. You said like leading up the information is organized in a way where it's it's leading up to, and it, which is, it's a little separate, right? That's a thing. The narrative structure of every deck, of every insights report, of every story, of every strategy presentation, of every investment banking pitch has to have a story structure or it should have a story structure. And there are different story structures. The most common, you know, you you lead up to uh, some conflict or challenge or whatever, and then it gets resolved, which is kind of, I think, where you were heading, right? Like the idea of, does it lead somewhere? You organize the information in a way that it leads somewhere. And I think that's right. It ha- The story structure is needs to be there, but kind of what I was saying is a little different what I was saying is, if it is the story structure, every deck effectively has a script. Every deck that you build has notes on each slide, and it's scripted, basically. Some are more than others, but every deck has a script. Every script, you think about a script, that's beginning to end, has some form of beginning to end. So every script also has can have an outline. And an outline is just like, at the highest levels, all the concepts in the script, all the, the sentences in the script, organized top to bottom, but just with in levels. And so like, when you think about a deck, when you think about a story that you're telling in a deck form, whether it's organized by sections, like expressly in the deck or not, I think you need to be thinking about the information, the organization of your information. Yes, it's probably and should be in a narrative format, which where you resolve a problem or there's a conflict, but also you need to be able to kind of almost visualize the information from a, in terms of what's more important, what relates to what. You know, you need to be able to zoom out again with the slide sorter and PowerPoint, see the deck and say, oh, okay, it makes sense that it's moving in this direction 
but also it makes sense that it's organized within each of these areas in this way. At the highest level, the key points that I'm making, they are independent of one another. There's three of them, and there's only three that I'm focusing on at that level. There might be three sections. There's not like five sections or seven sections, but only three of them are the key points. The, the way your organ, the information architecture, frankly, is built in such a way that there's hierarchy in there. It's a lot more effective when I have visuals with me. So they build on each other, basically. But should stories all have objectives or are stories are okay just to be plain informative? I mean, I would, I would think all stories would have an objective at the end that you're trying to achieve. Not at all, I don't think. You know, and there are different kinds of objectives for stories. You know, think about, and you've seen Pulp Fiction. There's like five stories there. They're out of sequence. They don't go beginning to end. They don't all go resolution. They don't all end fully resolved. So not every story has opening, introduction of problem. Problem comes to a head. Problem is resolved. And then the denouement, you know, like the resolution and, and finish, you know, like a lot of them do. A lot of good ones do. That's probably the easiest one for non-storytellers. For If you're not Quentin Tarantino, you probably don't want to build a deck bouncing around timeline-wise and narrative structures and not having a real story for any, you know, like a real resolution for any of them in some ways, you know. I think it's an easier, more intuitive template that structure, but they don't all have it. And in business, they don't have it too. Sometimes it's informational. Sometimes it's not like, here's the problem, here's how we resolve it. It's like, we have three problems, let's talk. It could be all sorts of things. I know you're a big fan of uh, keeping up with innovation, so I'm curious, what role, if any, do you think AI is going to play in storytelling as we move into the future? This is another big one. I'm going to try to keep this short-winded. So in the interest of like I change and, and I'm open to change, I've experimented a lot with AI and I'm pretty obsessed with it. Religiously listen to multiple AI podcasts, especially ones for marketers. The role that I think AI is going to have in storytelling, like in life, but especially in storytelling, is going to be profound. It already is profound. And I think today, the AI platform, you know, I use Anthropics Claude, I use ChatGPT. I use Runway, which is a video, the, the main video AI application out there now, and all the others I've experimented with. What it can do today is tell stories that are build stories in terms of like the characters, the names, the places, the and tell those stories. It can write books. It can write scripts. It can build decks. It can design your decks. It can take, it's going to be in Microsoft. Everyone's going to have it within 365. It's called Copilot. You might have heard about it, but everyone's going to hear about it in the next 12 months. So all of the Microsoft apps, OneDrive, all of your files in the next, let's say, 24 are going to have AI in them. You're going to be able to say, write me a deck about so-and-so, and it's going to just know where to go. Or you can tell it, use these six decks and build me uh, the story for the CEO on this day, whatever. And it's, it's gated, so you don't have a data security issue. So it's going to build decks. It's going to make documentaries. It's going to make videos. When you talk about storytelling, you're talking from an insights perspective, probably. It's going to identify insights. It's going to review all of your research work and optimize and help you optimize. And where it is in the long term is a very profound, philosophical, existential question. But in the short term, two to five years, 
I don't think it's hyperbole to say it's going to do any type of storytelling work that a human can do probably in collaboration with humans and amplify the storytelling capabilities and scale the idea of like, I, you know, I'm a big Knicks fan. I'm a big New York Knicks fan, basketball. And I was a big fan in the 90s when they were really good. Pretty much today, the technology exists to say, I want a 20-minute doc, documentary about the 1990s New York Knicks, specifically in this year when they lost to the Bulls. Bam, you have a documentary. The concept of content on demand is going to have a profound change and just an explosion of content and storytelling. I think it's going to be interesting because I think the kind of the concept of editing and curation is going to be more what we do in the medium term and long term as people, um, and less about the creation, and less about this. a lot of the storytelling is going to initially be enhanced by AI and ultimately probably be generated by AI. But I think the human element still to get the best AI, you still need the right human element to pose the question or the task to the AI to get it to properly too, right? And I think then I agree, then the editing part's important too, but the AI can definitely do a lot of the legwork extremely fast, like unbelievably, and at least get you a basis upon which to build upon, edit, and change. So what you're referring to is like prompt engineering, right? What they call prompt engineering. And that's the thing, right? Like people that are better, quote, prompt, they write better prompts in the chat GPT is a value add right now for humans. The thing is, though, for example, like some of the image creation apps are very complex to work with from a prompt perspective. Humans, you need a good human today to get like a really quality like illustration or image, you know, in Dolly or in Midjourney, which you might have opened before. Today, the next generation of Dolly, which is out now, from what I understand, the prompts are a lot more efficient. The ability for AI to understand your prompt, predict, and deliver relevant results is way enhanced. Like in five years, that's you're right. I think you need a human to prompt it and to nurture the conversation and the AI work product. You need a human today to do it well. But in five years, I mean, who knows? I mean, I think AI is going to be much more effective at giving you what you want than you are asking for it. You know what I mean? Interesting. So what role do you think humans will have? What role will humans have? <laughs> In the medium term, I think editors, curators, I think creators. In the long term, and I don't even know what that is. That could be 30 years. That could be three, you know? But in the long term, hopefully, listen, and that's why everyone's talking about it, the existential scenarios around AI and everything. Listen, I hope that we end up with a good result with our relationship with AI in the long term in terms of what role will humans have. But I think the best case scenario is that AI does most of the work for us. And there is an there is a, a way to manage the benefits that it's going to bring. It's going to bring insane benefits. And so like to distribute the benefits, to share the benefits in a way that if everybody benefits from it, do people need to be, uh, do people want to work? Or if you have a, a menu of options that are amazing, that are, don't involve work, that you can spend all of your time on, and the you know food prices are, there's the deflationary effect on the price of food and the price of service and the price of everything, maybe world peace, uh, the best case scenario. 
Let's not go into the well. Ultimately, you know, the application of AI well depend on how humans apply it as well, right? I mean, and like with anything, there's going to be good and bad, and hopefully, uh, the the good will prevail, and and the bad won't be as bad. But we'll just have to see, you know, as it unfolds. But I think it's interesting as AI. For me, AI is still a little bit more automated intelligence versus artificial, truly. And until it gets to the emotional aspects of what humans can do and, you know, that level of decision-making and even discerning insights, I think that's going to be very interesting if it gets to that point, which I think eventually it will. It's just not sure when. It's going to be even more interesting. That's for sure, right? The stuff that's on the frontier today is... And most people aren't looking at the frontier. You know what I mean? Most people know Chat GPT, maybe they've experimented, maybe they embraced it, or maybe they use Dolly or Midjourney for images sometimes. But they don't, the stuff that is out there that you can see. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. What? You know, it's banana. Today, you know, there'll be a need for humans. I hope we can build a world where it's human-centric. AI is crazy, right? It can take us to the, it can take consciousness and human consciousness to different galaxies in theory. You know what I mean? Like, not to be, like, it can do crazy, amazing things for humans. So, I don't know, this was probably a take. Yeah, this is a passion point for me, as you might hear. So probably shouldn't have gone down this road. Well, we'll have to have another podcast on that later on when we, uh, as you delve more into AI and implications and where you think it's headed, it'd be a fun conversation. But let me ask you, if you were to have a conversation with anybody in, in AI or or in storytelling or insights, uh, who would it be and why? AI and storytelling or insights. AI, I would probably like to talk to um, Sam Altman, who's the founder of OpenAI, the CEO of OpenAI, and uh, runs ChatGPT. Just like see what what's going on there, you know, but with him, with the company, with insights. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I'm a big fan of uh, Scott Galloway. Have you come across Scott Galloway in the podcast space? I'm a big fan. He's so insightful. I'd love to kind of like sit down with him for half an hour and talk about like my business and the the world of insights and other you know like uh, the other stuff we're doing as a business. Scott Galloway probably in that he's you know he founded Profit, which definitely does insights work, but more strategy. And that's that was the question, right? There was nobody else you were asking about. Yeah, storytelling. If there's another one for storytelling, storytelling, probably Quentin Tarantino. Like just intrigued by. Uh, He's the most unique storyteller, I think, of our of these generations. You know what I mean? Like the last 50 years. I yeah, I agree. He does a combination of bringing chaos and structure to it, but also visually, too, and tying it all together. And he, it's quite unique, for sure. Tying it all together. It's crazy how he does it. You know, like, I mean, it doesn't make sense. You know? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't, right? <laughs> so that's the thing. Uh, well, listen, it was, it was a pleasure talking to Corey. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to having a continued conversation with you on AI in the future and seeing where all this is going to take us. And, I, and I'd love your insights on it because especially when it ties to humans and storytelling, I think you bring a, an important and interesting perspective. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I had a great time. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.